This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Liebe, amore, sarang. No matter the language, it all means the same. Love. This is Chapter 203 of WCBS Author Talks. I'm Lisa Chernkovich, and this week it's all about the romance. Jen Federick teaches us family is about the people you love and not the blood you may share. April Asher uses a little bit of magic to tackle romantic tropes, and Jenica Cohen puts a new twist on an old favorite. Just like a heart has two halves, there are two parts to Jen Federick's story about a South Korean adoptee who finds her birth parents and reconnects with the country she never knew. And yes, of course, this being a romance, she finds the love of her life along the way. We first meet her main character, Hara, in Heart and Soul, the latter being spelled like the South Korean capital. Her story continues in Soul Mates. But don't worry if you haven't read the first book. Jen was happy to catch us up. Why was her story too big for just one book? Because I, it's a big story. You know, she goes to from the U.S., the only place that she's ever known, to a foreign country. She doesn't know the language. She doesn't know the customs. She doesn't really know any people there. And that story about how she uh, fell in love and gained a family took too many words for me to tell in one book. In fact, I think the first draft of the first book was over 100,000 words, and we pared it down to a little under 90. And then the second book is about 75,000 words. So it's just, it was a lot of story and one book, it would have been like an epic, it would have been like Dune, the first book of Dune, (laughs) and we put them together. You touched on it a tiny bit, but do me a favor and and bring people up to speed. How How is Howard doing at the start of this book, Soulmates? So at the start of Soulmates, she is uh, working at her uh, biological mother's company. For those who haven't read the first book, her biological mother runs a a, a large logistics company and she also gives money to adoption organizations and uh, speaks for women's rights. So it was quite the scandal that she secretly gave up a child for adoption. And when it becomes known that Hara exists, it imperils the company. And so they agree that Hara will come and work at this company and become part of the um, Chua family. But she doesn't know Korean and 
it's very difficult for her to do her a job at a Korean company and everyone resents her because she's not qualified. She's a nepotism hire. And uh, so it's a struggle for her to acclimate. And she doesn't want to tell her mother or her boyfriend about her problems because she doesn't want to get anyone fired. She understands her coworkers' plight. I mean, she'd be mad too if uh, someone came into her business and got a job and they're totally unqualified for it. So she's struggling, uh, but she's got to do it privately. I felt like her struggle seems so much more intense because she looks like everyone else in Korea and people expect something different, whereas maybe like a white or black American might get some sort of a pass. I think that's actually pretty accurate. There's a term that they have that or motherland Koreans have for uh, Koreans who grew up abroad and it's yippos. And it's not always used in a uh, loving manner. Although I think that cultures are are changing quite a bit or uh, not cultures, but attitudes are changing. When I first went to Korea back in 2002, uh, I went as part of the Holt Motherland Tour, which is a Holt was the adoption agency that facilitated my US adoption. And they host a um, tours for Korean adoptees. And I went on one with my husband. At that time, they were slowly uh, eradicating overseas adoptions because it's kind of a shameful thing that these babies from Korea were shipped abroad, were exported. And they've, Korea has done a lot to address that. There's actually special laws that allows Korean adoptees to gain Korean citizenship, which is very rare. Uh, very few people, uh, very few South Koreans can have dual citizenship and adoptees are one set that are able to do that. But in 2002, um, adoption really wasn't well accepted because blood is very important. And I tried to address that a little bit in my story um, about how family isn't what's in your blood, but the love in your heart. You know, it's the people that you come to love that form your family. And I think that's the, the true, or at, that's at the heart and of, of an adoptee's relationship with their family, because you don't look anything like the people who raised you or even your siblings. Uh, you don't look like your relatives when you go to a family reunion, you have a picture, you don't look anything like the people in the picture. So you really have to embrace this idea that family is not about uh, lineage and bloodlines, but it's about the people who love you and the people that you love. And that's Hara's entire journey. And I mean, just from sharing that story and those thoughts with us, it's it's obvious that your upbringing in the Midwest and, and your experiences as an adoptee really influenced who she is. Obviously, she's a fictional character, but, you know, my adoption story and my adoption feelings can be very different from everybody else's. Like my brother is adopted and he has different feelings than I do. Um, I actually have three adopted uh, siblings and two of them are Caucasian. And so their experiences were actually very different than mine as well. So 
you know, people's adoption stories are very different. And Hara's adoption story reflects one experience. Um, and some of my feelings are imbued in her and some are just her because that was the character and that's how she develops in the story. I don't actually know how I would feel in her place without having gone through that experience. I'm going to switch gears a little bit. And I, I know found family is a big a part of the story. And I know that, you know, all of Howard's experiences are. But another, I think, large part of your story is food. There is so <laughs> much discussions about Korean food. And honestly, I was pretty much hungry the entire time I was reading your book. <laughs> I've heard that from other people. But one of the things I miss the most about South Korea is the food. Um, I live in Iowa and we don't have any Korean restaurants around where I live. So whenever we have Korean food, it's food that we make at home. Um, and when I was in Korea, uh, it's just, you know, the food there is so good. The um, For people who are unfamiliar with Korean food, there's a couple things that might surprise you. One of the most famous Korean foods is uh, fried chicken. And it's not like uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken, but it's more like uh, chopped up uh, chicken breasts or chicken thighs, and it's double fried. So they um, season the season the the breading, and then they double fry that, and then it's mixed with sauces. And so Korean fried chicken is one of the best things that you can get in Korea, and it's super cheap. You can eat a huge meal for like $5 in Korea. The other real famous or commonly known Korean food is the Korean barbecue, where you go to a restaurant and there's a grill at your table and you grill it or your uh, a waiter will grill it for you. And you order things in sets. And so you might have the beef set or the chicken set or the pork set. And in Korea, the restaurants are pretty specialized. So if you want to have pork, you would go to a pork barbecue. If you want to have Korean beef, which is called hanu, you would go to a hanu restaurant. But beyond that, uh, you know, they have a lot of sweet dishes, a lot of stews, you can go on YouTube. There are a lot of videos on YouTube and I have watched so many <laughs> just for my own personal pleasure, but also for research for this book, I watched, I don't know, hundreds of YouTube videos of street vendors cooking foods. And it was hard to watch <laughs> that and not be able to eat. <laughs> I forget how lucky I am being in New York City where I could really find anything I want to eat. And I've had a serious hankering for Korean food following this book. And I want to I want to steal one of your book club questions, which is are you a rice or a potato person? I am a rice person. Um and I I do wonder if it's a little bit how my mother raised me. She did a great job of trying to incorporate Korean culture and so we had rice and kimchi uh for as long as I can remember. Um I know how to use chopsticks because that was introduced to me in a very young age. And I remember I had the training um, chopsticks. Those are connected at the back for children. So you just kind of press them like tweezers until you're old enough to be able to manipulate them by yourselves. 
so I eat a lot of rice and I don't know if that's part of my nature or part of the nurturing. What about you, Lisa? Are you a rice or um, potato person? I am a starch person. So if you give me a plate with rice and potatoes, I am a very happy camper. <laughs> my dad um, is, was uh, a potato person. He was did not enjoy rice. He loved potatoes, loved mashed and baked potatoes. Um, so I don't know how many people will relate to that, but it really felt like a, um, perfect delineation between my, uh, Midwestern roots and my Korean roots. You know what? I will tell you, my dad liked to mix his rice into his mashed potatoes. <laughs> so I kind of picked up on that a little bit. And if I'm given the choice of both, I will take both and kind of put a little bit of eat like mix them together it's i know it's weird but you know it's it's fun when you when you can talk to people about you know how you grew up and what sort of things ended up being like comfort food to you and now you've gotten you've shared that with the world now with this book which is really cool thank you so do you plan on revisiting any of these characters in a future book uh, I don't know. I think it would depend on if readers want to read more about them. I think about them quite a bit. They really came alive to me in the course of writing the two books. I I missed Korea a lot when I was writing it. So I'm anxious to go back and I'm curious to see what stories might come to me when I'm there. Well, I hope you will get to go on that trip soon. I hope the world will let you get to go on that trip. In the meantime, people can take a take a trip through your book, Soul Mate, which we should note since this is a, a podcast interview, is spelled S-E-O-U-L Mates. Jen Frederick, thank you for your time today. Thank you for having me. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. If you aren't a regular romance reader, you probably don't know that there are endless subgenres, from historical romance to erotic romance, there are even age and heat categories. You can use your imagination about what that last one means. One of my new favorites is paranormal romance, and we're not just talking about vampires and werewolves here. No, no. Magic, witches, angels, and other fantastical elements all come into play in these types of romance novels, and April Asher's new book, not the witch you wed has a little bit of everything. Basically, um, it is about a magicless witch um, who lives in this alternate reality in New York City where supernaturals are just kind of out of the open um, and navigating everyday dating life in the city. Um, and she's from a prominent witch family who um, had her heart broken as a teenager by um, a wolf shifter named Lincoln. And into adulthood, they run into each other again, and it just so happens that they are both being forced to find um, mates. And so they agree to fake date their way towards a fake mating. And then, of course, you know, magic and shenanigans ensue. I love that even though they're supernatural in possession of magic and other powers, dating is still hard. Oh, 
yes. And actually, I think the tagline on the book cover is like perfect. And it says, um, magic never made love any easier because it's true. Like it's, it's, it's messy regardless. (laughs) Now, Supernaturals is, is something that you've, you've written about before. What's your draw to them? I love the escape, you know, like, um, because my, my previously published books were all romantic suspense um, under April Hunt. And when in 2019, um, COVID hit, <laughs> and I needed something that was like far out of the realm of reality. Um, and literally, that's when the idea for Not the What You Read came. And it, and it did. It, it saved me through that 2020 year uh, writing it. <laughs> And we should note that, you know, everyone had a tough time, but you in particular, yeah. you're, you're a nurse. I am a nurse, yep. And I work in a hospital. And so while everybody, you know, kids home, hubby home, lockdowns, quarantine, um, but I was going to work and probably working more than I ever had in my 20 years of nursing. <laughs> so. You can tell that this book in particular is is just a fun Escape from Reality. And although it's set in New York, which is where I'm talking to you from. So that was kind of fun to to imagine what this world where supernatural beings lived out in the open with with the rest of us norms right. would be like. That It was really kind of fun to think about that. But also at the same time, and you've probably thought about this lots of times, if you would actually be a supernatural if this kind of world existed. Oh, right. Yeah, absolutely. And if you were... Where do you think you would land on the spectrum? Oh, gosh. You know, <laughs> I would love to be a witch and have some powers. Um, but, um, you know, there's a draw. Like, I, I'm, I'm a big, like, shifter. And so, you know, I would like to have little bits and pieces of all the supernaturals. You know, um, Violet's friend is um, a succubus, and she, like, has no filter. <laughs> So I would like to be, like, outspoken and out there like she is. Um, But I've always gravitated towards witches and everything witchy. Even when I was growing up and, like, devouring, like, Charmed and um, Hocus Pocus and you name it. And you also, in this book, you have some fun um, tackling all those classic romance novel tropes, don't you? Oh, yes. I always say it's (laughs) (laughs) tropetastic. Everything that, yeah, like all those tropes that I absolutely love, like I think Enemies to Lovers is probably like my all-time favorite. Like if there is a book that has an Enemies to Lovers trope and I see it on the blurb, I usually don't have to read like the rest of the blurb. (laughs) I'm usually like, just click, you know, but, um, and then Second Chance, there's always something about that Second Chance where, you know, the characters already have a history and it just creates for a lot of drama and then like fake relationships. It's just like, ah. The conflict is right there, just waiting to be uh, experienced. You know what I love about the enemies to, to lovers thing is that when you pick it up, you know you know that they're going to end up falling in yes. love. Oh, but, yeah. But throughout the whole book, you're just the edge of your seat wondering, is this really going to happen? Have I been misled? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And then, too, like that that way, that road that they get to where, you know, they cannot stand each other in the beginning and they don't want to trust each other. And then just that gradual shift to suddenly they realize that this is the perfect person for them. 
Now, as you mentioned, uh, your your witch Violet um, is part of a she's part of a magical triad. So she's a one of triplets yep. who all have magic powers. And I'm gonna guess from where you left the ending of the book that we're gonna see the other sisters. We are. So the next one, I don't think we we've had titles for the other two books um, for over a year now, but I don't think I can share them yet. Um, but yes, I can. But she's Rose. <laughs> And I'm in the editing stage of that book right now. Um, And then the third one is Olive. So we'll definitely get more witchy sisters. Now, I know you were you probably sort of in a different headspace, even though this pandemic is ongoing and feels like it's never going to end. Writing (laughs) the second book as opposed to where you were that first book. Has that influenced how the story has evolved for you? Yeah. Book twos. I don't know what it is. I think as a lot of authors Book two seemed to be a lot more difficult than book ones, and and I this one definitely is taking me longer. Not that what you read was actually the fastest book I have ever written. Like I, I think I, when it came to proposal time, I wrote, I want to say the first one hundred pages in like a week <laughs> or a week and a half, um, and that's never happened before. And I don't know that it'll ever happen again. But um, but you spend so much time on that first book like getting to know your characters, getting to know, you know, their conflicts and their personalities and then the atmosphere, you know, like the city in New York, you know, um, that sometimes it's hard to shift it off that main, that first couple. <laughs> so there's always a time when I'm writing the second book where I'll be writing and I'll accidentally call the, this new character, you know, this new couple by the first one's names. And there's always an adjustment period. <laughs> Poor Rose. <laughs> I know. I know. As if poor Rose didn't have enough uh, of problems to deal with. Yeah. yeah, she went through. She went through her paces in that first book. You definitely did not make it easy on her. You know, no. We've been talking with April Asher. The book is not the witch you wed. Thank you for your time today, April. Thank you for having me. Consider this romance trope. The man who tries to make over a woman and falls in love in the process. You know it pretty well. From the original George Bernard Shaw play Pygmalion to movie versions like My Fair Lady and Pretty Woman, the story is a classic that's been adapted a few times. But Jenica Cohen's version isn't anything like the ones that have come before it. Your first hint comes from the title. My Fine Fellow. You flipped the beloved classic, My Fair Lady, on its head. Eliza becomes Elijah. Henry Higgins is Helena. When did you know this was a project that you had to undertake? Well, I was trying to figure out what my next book was going to be after my debut. And um, I was working on a couple different ideas. And then I was, um, I think I was watching the movie, My Fair Lady, one day and I thought, I wonder if anyone's ever done a retelling of this, of My Fair Lady or Pygmalion. Um, And so I went and looked it up. I didn't find anything. And then uh, I just basically started like brainstorming ideas for it. And when I came up with, you know, first was sort of like the gender swap idea. And I thought, oh, that would work pretty well. And then um, the food idea popped into my head because I love food. And I thought, you know, why not have a, you know, there aren't as many books with a lot of food, or at least there weren't back at that time. And I thought this will just be something fun, like a fun project. And uh, so, yeah, it kind of went from there. I basically 
like put my other stuff aside and decided this was going to be the thing to work on. I love that there are all these little Easter eggs in in your prose that for those who know the film adaptation well, they're going to definitely have a, get a kick out of, out of finding those. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> like, I enjoy them. So. And I knew, you know, I, I think when people read a retelling um, or even watch, you know, uh, a redux of a, you know, Redux movie or TV show or something like, I think they're hoping for some of those. Um, at least if you, you know, if you know the source material and you're a fan of it, like I think people are looking for some of those. So I wanted to put them in. Um, and also, you know, it was fun for me <laughs> to kind of <laughs> to throw them in there. So I think a lot of people nowadays, when there's this sort of retelling done of, of a story set during a certain time, a big change is always that the the time period changes. But you didn't go and mm-hmm. do that. This is not a modern retelling of that story. You've chosen to keep it in the, in the same time period, but you've made an alternative version of England. Can you tell us a little bit more about that change? I didn't think I was the person to modernize it. And also I felt like that would have been the most obvious choice. And so I figured... Why not put it further back in the 18th, in the 1900s, uh, the 19th century, rather. And um, so I pushed it back. I think the original takes place uh, in the, either the late, uh, the late 1800s or like the early, like maybe the first decade of the 1900s. And yet, so I wanted to push it back to the 1830s and give that, uh, like that era a little more light um, and that also, you know, enabled me to kind of change the timeline because I thought I really wanted to put it to do something in an era where women had more opportunities and, um, you know, there aren't that many eras other than our modern era. And so I had kind of uh, I written myself into a corner a little bit. And so I decided, <laughs> why not do an alternate timeline? Um, that way I'll be able to figure out a way for the girls to have professions and be, um, you know, be able to self-actualize and yeah. And then also still at the same time, be able to like talk about some of the prejudices that were going on at that time. And that obviously still exists today. You really had me itching to search Google to find out if, if women were really allowed to be these culinarians as, as the job <laughs> is in the book and whether, and it, and, I'm blanking on the name of the act that allowed women to have these jobs. Freedom of Female Education Bill. That's what I had created. And I thought it would be so, I was like, oh, this would be great. This is part of history I'd never heard of. And it turns out you made it up. I know. I mean, I wish it were true. <laughs> I think my timeline's so much more fun for everyone. But, and you, you know, know what? Obviously, it still has its problems, but yeah. Right. And and while, it, while your universe is a, a little bit friendlier toward women than... The, the, the reality was it still, I would say, was easier for a man and knowing that or at least for a man to get away with maybe lying about who he was. Uh, you've given Elijah a certain background that would have made life difficult for him. I don't really want to give it away because I think that's that's a nice discovery along the uh, along the way in reading the story. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, I didn't want to venture so far that it was an unrecognizable time, you know, that it would be unrecognizable um to our timeline i just wanted to to veer slightly slightly to the left i suppose and then um yeah but also you know i didn't want to completely get rid of everything that 
that would still have existed. Um, so it was sort of that balance between figuring out what would still be there um, as far as social, you know, the social makeup, and then what would have changed, um, which was actually quite fun. I, you know, I actually enjoy alternate history. The only thing I, I do wonder if people will get that it's alternate history until, you know, somewhere in the middle. <laughs> so I, I rewatched the, the film, I think it was this past summer, and oh. I, was stru- I was struck by just how awful and conceited Henry Higgins really was. And I like that, right. that you don't really shy away from that in your character of, of, of Helena just because she's a woman. Yeah, I think that's one of the interesting and things about the original is how awful Henry Higgins is. And even at the time, you know, it wasn't, it was not like we watch it now and say, oh, this is so, um, you know, like they did, like they, they didn't know that this was misogynistic. They knew it. Um, but also, you know, it was more obviously more accepted and yet it still is quite obvious. So I think what I wanted to do with this one, with my fine fellow was, you know, like you say, not shy away from the the misogyny that was in the original and yet also and so helena is still a little bit like i wouldn't say she's well disposed towards the opposite sex and yet um she is not quite as bad as henry higgins on that front i think um you know i didn't want to go totally into you know that make her completely misandric or anything but um yeah she's you know she's still i think a tough character to like um, because she has so much entitlement um, as Henry Higgins did in the original. And, you know, it's sort of her journey of trying to hopefully get over some of that stuff, you know, hopefully grow a little bit. Um, And I think hopefully I have her, she grows a bit more than Henry Higgins does in the original. (laughs) I think she does. And there's a little bit of a, of a twist, your own twist there as well as uh, as to how things end and who ends up with who, which I enjoyed. Oh, good. I'm glad. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, I wasn't a fan of that original pairing, so to speak, just because. Yeah, I, I guess I won't spoil it. So <laughs> <laughs> that's the hardest part about these interviews. Sometimes it's like after you've read the book, you really want to chat with the author about it, but you really want other people to enjoy it as well. So you you dance around things. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> I know. So what do you want people to take away from your version? I'm hoping that if people will take away that, um, you know, that food is really something that can kind of be a great equalizer um, and open doors for many people and um, bring people together. And as as well, I hope they will you know, get a little insight into what life was like for um, Jewish people at that time, people who have mixed race, um, and also hopefully have some fun at the same time. (laughs) I love um, the food thing, and and you really make it super enjoyable and also interactive because you put a little recipe at the end of that book for us. I did, yeah. I I was amazed to see that people are already making them and posting them on Instagram. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Now, is it one of your own creation? 
Do you consider yourself a little bit of a culinarian? I, I suppose I do. I at one point thought I might go to culinary school and become a chef. So, um, but I've, you know, I've been cooking and baking since I was pretty young. And so, yeah, this is sort of, uh, my, my creation of, yeah, coconut, chocolate, coconut empanadas. And what's your signature dish? That's a good question. Um, my signature dish. I used to make a really nice chocolate souffle. Also, I tend to do like beef Wellington for fancy occasions. (laughs) If I can. That seems perfect for this book. You know what we've gone and done now? You've made me hungry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that is uh, tends to be a side effect of the book. <laughs> <laughs> this is very true. And I hope people go out there and pick up my fine fellow, Jenica Cohen. Thank you for your time today. Oh, thank you so much. And that's where we close the book on this chapter. Next time, we sit down with therapist Whitney Goodman, who challenges us not to look on the bright side. It's an eye-opening conversation. Until then, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich.